Maximize your sense of aliveness. Gain new perspectives on health, your body, and the meaning of life. You can control your physiology and how you feel in your body in this moment. Your life will never be the same. This is the Vitality Podcast with Andrea Page. I'm here, and I love you all, and welcome. Lots of people came out tonight. We have a a special request topic. I always ask uh, the students that come regularly to these classes to request things, and usually they're quite shy to do it. They don't often do it. Uh, But tonight we do. We have a request. I'm going to be talking about the topic of sugar. And so I actually did some preparation. Looks like that. No, actually, that's a kid was over my house today and drew that for me. But on the back side, I drew a map, and I know you can't all see this, so I'm just going to refer to it, and then I can post a picture later if you want. Um, And we'll be talking about this. Give me a show of hands. How many of you, this is your first time in a lecture, this is your first time hearing my voice, haven't been to the Monday Night Talks before? Awesome. Okay, let me ask the reverse. How many of you have been here before? Okay, cool. Welcome back. So a bit of a split, and everyone's all over the place. I love it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Andrea. I'm the director of the detox department here at the Yoga Barn, and we do many things here. Personally, my mission, my goal with the work I do in this space, as well as in the space of the retreats I lead, is to help people raise the bar on health, to transform our understanding of health, to no longer be simply living without disease, right? Is that how you guys tend to identify health? Like, I'm not sick, so I'm healthy. Have you heard that before? But my prerogative is to communicate that health is actually so much more. That health is, what I say, living with maximum vitality. Feeling like you just want to jump and skip and play all day long. And having that energy to do that inside of you. It might be something that you remembered from when you were a kid. Is that how you guys feel? You feel like that? I love it. I want to jump and skip and play all day long. Totally. I get that. I get that. And the thing is that in our life today, in our modern life, we have lots of detox retreat participant alumni in the room. I love it. Welcome, guys. You can talk to them after if you're curious, but the one starting tomorrow is full. So come back another month. Um, Awesome. So when we start to experience vitality in our life, we can be like that kid and jump and skip and play without having to think about it, without having to effort to do it. Who has to effort to go to yoga class or go to the gym? Yeah, be honest. Yeah, sometimes you're like, I'm a bit tired. I just don't want to get out of bed. This is not fun. I just want to sleep all day or check Facebook or whatever it is. Does that sound familiar? That's kind of the plague of our modern time. But the thing is, when you have an experience, hi, Lydia, even another one. When you have an experience, when you feel beyond that and when you feel like ready to go, right? And quite often that happens when you're fasting, That's the work that we do here. I I link people into that place through a kind of fasting program because the logic behind fasting is that all of the energy that would normally go to digestion goes to fuel and power your cells. And that's really awesome because it's like you just had a bunch of energy that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so it's this feeling of vitality reconnecting into that. And so starting on a fast is a really good way to kind of jumpstart your connection into your own inner source of self or source of vitality. Yeah? So, uh, one last thing, order of business before I start straight into our lecture, because I know we're conscious of time this evening, is to expose my biases to you. And I always do this at the beginning of the lectures because I find it really important that anyone who's giving any kind of public speech or teaching something probably has some opinions, 
I do have some opinions, right? My opinions are largely formed and shaped by my biases. And so I'll tell you straight up front, I am a natural hygienist. And natural hygiene is the precursor to modern naturopathy. I also have a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. This is the study of the body in a state of health. And so what I like to say now is that doctors, normal doctors, Western medicine doctors, MDs, they study disease. They spend years upon years studying disease, right? They have very little education on health or even what I tend to work with, like above health, beyond health, right? Vitality. And so I'm a doctor of health rather than a doctor of disease. Yeah? So that's a humongous bias. And so for those of you who are healthy, good, you're in the right place because you think you're healthy or you don't have any diseases, but wait a minute, you still don't feel like that child energy every day. So my goal or my prerogative, let's say, is to take you to the next level and, and up-level that. Does that sound good? Yeah? So we're going to be doing it tonight um, through looking at the lens of sugar. I guess I should expose other biases. I have a Master's of Science in Ethnobotany, which is the study of the relationship between people and plants. My specialty is gastroethnobotany, the study of food plants, so looking at what kind of plants people can eat, perhaps what they can get from them, the chemical composition of them. This is the stuff related to the sugar talk tonight, right? What that does in the body. That's also my naturopathy doctorate and all of these other things. And uh, I'm as well a career colon hydrotherapist and I'm the director of the colonics clinic here at the yoga barn. We have Lindsay back there. She's one of our awesome, amazing therapists. You can go in chat with her afterward. Oh, and there's Heidi. Heidi's the other one. Oh my God, there's so many people. You're hidden in a sea of gorgeous faces. So you can talk to them afterward if you're interested, but I have a heavy, heavy, heavy bias toward the colon, right? This is our rubbish bin. This is our waste removal system. And most people's today are backed up because how often are we supposed to be defecating or moving our bowels? Yeah, there we go. There we go. I love it. Once per meal per day. Once per meal per day. That should be news to most of you. Yeah. If you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that means pooping thrice a day. And so that will also be woven into this lecture as to understand how we can perhaps start to do that. All right? So that's enough about my biases. Um, let's get right into talking about sugar. Sugar. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh-oh. Little kid's excited. There are no goodie bags that come with this lecture. You are not going home with anything for free. Okay, <laughs> you got to take him home, I mean. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So sugar, this is a word that comes to the English language through medieval Latin, through French and Spanish, right, sucre. Yeah, we get sucrose, actual the chemical name for a composite sugar, from this root. And sugar itself is referring to multiple things in the English language, all right? In one respect, sugar is a group of chemical composites. So we have, does anyone know the, the broken down forms of sugar in the body? Glucose is the first one. Okay. Okay. These are different kinds of sugars. There are three principal ones that function in the human body. So glucose is one of them. Fructose. Did someone just say aspartame? <laughs> I swear I heard that. That is not a real sugar. And it's also a neurotoxin, side note. Okay, so we have glucose, we have fructose. Keep going, keep going. I heard it over here. Lactose, there we go, lactose. So these are the three sugars in the body. When we have fructose and glucose, these are what we call simple sugars, all right? 
Together, when they come into the body, often they'll bind, or perhaps they've come into the body already bound, and that's sucrose. All right, so sucrose is a disaccharide. Two sugar elements together. Fructose and glucose are only one element of sugar, and to put them together makes the sucrose, okay? So the three simple sugars in the body, of course, the third one being lactose, is found where? Milk. Very good. All right, so it's milk sugar. That's why milk is sweet, no matter what kind of milk you're talking about, except for, I guess, rice milk or something like that. Right? Naturally occurring mammal milk. So... When we start with sugar, uh, we have to also look at the other half of this word and how we define it. What are we referring to when we say sugar, and we're not talking about those naturally occurring chemical composites? Yeah, I love it. That, that, the five-year-old, six-year-old, seven, eight, how old are you? Ten-year-old, sorry, sorry, sorry. Ten-year-old said that. <laughs> I haven't had enough sugar. Okay, the ten-year-old said that. Very good. Corn syrup. Okay, what's another form of sugar that's often occurring in our life today? Perhaps the most simple form? Yeah, processed sugar. We call it gula pasir, table sugar here in Bali. It's the white powdered stuff. White powdered, you've seen it before? You know what I'm talking, the white powdered, white. Maybe you've seen other white powdered stuff, but all that white powdered stuff. It's actually the same. Yeah, it's white powdered stuff. Unfortunately, in the English language, we only have one word to describe both of these totally different occurrences in nature. All right? Because the white powdered stuff, of course, we know, where does it come from? Anyone? What does white sugar come from? Sugarcane. Very good. Sugarcane, okay? So some of it comes from beet sugar today, depending. Uh, but we won't talk about that too much. I'll just say that a lot of things like the high fructose corn syrup, which comes from corn, or like certain types of uh, added sugar to things like soda pop, actually does come from beet sugar. It does not come from cane sugar anymore. And beet sugar, 95% of the sugar beets in the world are genetically modified. Do you guys know about GM crops? Yeah? And so what that means, 95 is like almost 100. So whenever you were to ever like eat something with sugar already added, a la processed foods or different sauces or things like that, you're consuming genetically modified foods. So that's just something to keep on the back burner and to know. But for the respect to this lecture, we'll be talking about cane sugar. So cane sugar. Cane sugar grows in canes, of course. It's found in tropics all over the world. When I lived in China, I used to cut it down and chew on it. Well, someone else would cut it down for me, I'll be honest. And I would chew on it, though. I would chew on it and, you know, row a boat and chew on the sugar cane. And that was the full plant-based form of sugar. Now, how does that sugar cane itself, because it was sweet when I chewed on it, but it wasn't nearly as sweet as that white powdered stuff, how does that get from cane to box on the shelf of the grocery store or in your cupboard? Hopefully not. Anyone? Yeah, a, a processing system. So, so let's, let's go through the journey of processing. We'll cut down the sugar cane, or we'll have someone else do it for us, right? And then we'll take the sugar cane to perhaps this big extracting machine, right, to juice it. Maybe you've seen that in Bali. We have sugar cane juice in other parts of the tropical world. Out from the sugar cane comes this juicy, light green liquid, all right? That's sugar cane juice. Who's had sugar cane juice? Yummy, yeah? Sweet, but not nearly as sweet as, let's say, a soda pop, all right? So sugarcane juice comes out, and we're left with the vegetable fiber matter, all right? Vegetable fiber matter we throw away, and the sugarcane juice itself is water and sugar, all right? 
Inside of there, what we want, of course, is the sugar, the crystalline substance, the carbohydrate as, as it breaks down in the body. And we send it off to a refining millery or a processing plant. And there, the processing plant goes and, oh, everyone's going to the bathroom? What is this? Everyone <laughs> comes to the processing plant and we refine the sugar, which means that you tend to mill it, right? Or you put it through a process that creates these small crystal granules. Now, originally, they would be maybe like tan in color, caramel in color. They would be a bit bigger. Has anyone ever had this before? This is sugar in the raw, yeah? Sometimes it's stripped, all of that coloring is stripped from sugar in the raw. It's processed further, and then the coloring's put back in. This is what we call brown sugar. Have you ever baked with brown sugar? Yeah, it's just white sugar with the coloring put back in. That's unfortunate, huh? All right, so moving on. If we take it out all the way through, we're trying to get to that heart of it, the sugar. A lot of times, even bleach, white-colored bleach, is added to the crystalline substance at the end before it's sent off to the grocery store or toward you. Yeah? And so this sugar goes on its journey, and we find our finished product. Now, if we look at the number of sugar consumption, uh, it has absolutely escalated. Right? So sugar was a colonial byproduct when Spain and Portuguese colonialists went across the world and found Latin America, right, lots of sugar cane, they said, whoa, we've hit a gold mine, right? In the 1700s, sugar 20 times over increased in consumption. I didn't say that very well. People started to consume 20 times as much sugar just in the 1700s than they had before. And this was shown to be a great cultural change. Even when we fast forward to today, Right? Sugar comes with tea. It was a big part of the British colonial empire as well, right? which went all over the world. We see its legacy in certain countries today, huh? perhaps the Commonwealth and other previous British colonies, places like Australia, the United States, Canada, and even the UK itself. Those are four of the most obese countries in the world. Right? That's something to link or ponder or see some correlation there. Right. But when we look to sugar in modern day time, there's a really great uh, YouTube video. I want you guys to look it up. It's a TED talk of Jamie Oliver, a pretty well-known British chef. He's awesome, and he does a whole talk on sugar, and he takes a wheelbarrow of sugar out on the stage and dumps it. It's awesome. Great talk. But some facts from that are that, at least in the U.S., because he was doing this TED talk in the U.S., and of course, where the United States goes, the world follows. So the data from the U.S. is that each day, people are consuming one kilo or more of sugar. One kilo. That's two to three pounds of sugar per day. If you look at it per, per year, that's 135 pounds or 61 kilos of sugar per year. Just in normal diet. And I'm not talking about the white powdered stuff. I'm talking about maybe in processed foods, maybe in the places where you don't see it, right? Maybe in lipstick, even. It's crazy. It's hidden about just about everywhere, all right? So when we look at the reason why sugar has become so popular as we, as we follow this cultural trajectory of its rise with the human race, we see that, of course, it's become so popular because we human beings have a natural, say it, sweet tooth. There we go, a natural sweet tooth. Now, we have to say, why on earth do we have a natural sweet tooth? Whoever felt guilty about their sweet tooth before? Yeah, those are a lot of hands. I am here to 
wipe that guilt away and to let you know that y y that's natural, that that's part of life, that that kid saying, yeah, sugar, <laughs> right, was a normal part of him being a kid. But the thing is, when his genetic makeup was determined, right, in our evolution of our species, which is about four, three and a half to four million years ago, at that time, we didn't have the white powdered stuff. What did we have at that time, anyone? Yeah, pretty much fruit. Fruit, maybe sweet flowers, maybe some tree saps, right? But that's about it, naturally occurring sugars, which remember I told you are chemically very, very different than that white powdered stuff. And so when we look back to uh, what we're supposed to be eating or perhaps the ratio of where we're supposed to get most of our calories as a human species, and I kind of, I tend to highlight that and elbow that because I've done lots of study in evolutionary anthropology where we look at the fact that we are all one species. You don't see different species of bears eating different foods, right? Or different species of, I can't say dogs because they've been domesticated, like wolves eating different foods, right? Or elephants. Each species has more or less some guidelines, some species-specific diet. This is part of the web of life. This is why we're here on Earth, because we have a food that is going to be able to sustain us to survive. Right? But the thing is, over the past three and a half million years, not only the Earth, but also human beings have changed where we live, how we live, right? where we work, right? where we get our food, and how we get our food. And with these changes, came a massive change in our diet, right? And so now humans have evolved into becoming what we call omnivores. Whereas when we look at the original ecology and the web of life, there is no such species that is omnivorous. For sure, there are certain things like maybe raccoons or bears which have evolved with us into being omnivorous as a coping mechanism. But when we go back to evolutionary history, we can see that very clearly we have a species-specific diet. Now, does anyone know the great ape family? Yeah? No? Yes? The great apes? Yeah? It's a family. Can you name some of them? Name some of the specific great apes? Yeah? Chimpanzees. Has anyone been to Borneo? Orangutans. There we go. Yeah, these big old, big old, we would call them monkeys, but monkeys are different than apes, of course. Well, most of those, like chimpanzees, orangutans, we share 96 to 98 of our, percent of our DNA with them. 96 to 98% of our DNA. That's a lot of DNA to be sharing with a hairy, smelly cousin, right? Because without his hair and his smell, you actually look a, a lot like him, right? Well, guess what? Inside of you, at a molecular level, you also function a lot like him, right? And the studies I've done over the past three and a half million years, our digestive system has changed like that much, not much. And so if you were to walk into, let's say, a zoo, and you were to say to the zookeeper, the zoologist there, hey, mister, nice to meet you. I like your orangutans. Will you tell me what you feed them to mimic their natural diet and their natural environment? And he'll say, well, hello, lovely lady. Nice to meet you as well. We would feed the orangutans tons of ripe fruit and leafy green vegetables. Ripe fruit and leafy green vegetables. And many vegetables that we as modern humans classify as vegetables are actually non-sweet fruits. Things like zucchini, things like tomatoes, things like cucumber. You know, botanically, they have seeds. They're fruits. Yeah? So that's the diet. What did I just say? Fruits and vegetables? 
So if we fast forward to us here today, this is pretty much the only dietary advice that I ever aim to give in public, is eat more fruits and vegetables. Who's never heard that before? Yeah, no hands. Good, good. I'm glad you're all educated. <laughs> fruits and vegetables are good for you. Yes, because these are our original foods. And when we look at the macrobiotic makeup of fruits and vegetables, not macrobiotic, sorry, I went to Mario Kushi. When we look at the <laughs> macronutrient makeup of fruits and vegetables, we see very easily that they're somewhere around 80% or more of calories from carbohydrates, right? And then 10% or so or less from protein and fat. You know that? Carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, those are our three macronutrients, right? The big scale nutrients. The micronutrients, those are all your vitamins, your minerals that you're usually too narrow-mindedly concerned about. If we were just to balance out our macronutrients, we wouldn't have too much of a problem with the micronutrients because guess what? Fruits and vegetables contain tons of what? Vitamins and minerals, micronutrients. Very good. Both of you get A pluses. All right. So when we look at, everyone else can have one too. I love, I love all of you equally. When we look at sugar, we can see that indeed it's a carbohydrate. Indeed, it is so much a humongous part of our natural diet. And indeed, that is why we have a sweet tooth. Yeah, one of my teachers from whom a lot of the, let's say, critical thinking from this lecture comes, a man named Douglas Graham, says if you put a baby in a room with a banana and a lamb, I would give you a hundred dollars or one million rupiah if he were to eat the lamb and play with the banana. Right? Of course, he's going to eat the banana and play with the lamb. So we can st start to see some essence of what is natural to us. And by all means, the sweet tooth is natural. All right? Don't feel guilty if you're feeding lamb to babies. That's not my intention here. But feed breast milk first. All right, good. So when we go back to the first thing that I talked about in this lecture, the chemical makeup or the chemical construction of sugar, we can start to see that those two simple sugars, right, the monosaccharides, remember what they were? Glucose, good, and fructose, very good. What these do is they come together creating the disaccharide, or perhaps like in the case of the beets, they're already together. And when you eat them, they break up into the monosaccharides in the body. When they process through, glucose specifically is the body's energy fuel. This is what your brain runs off of, glucose. This is why it's such an inherent need. When we eat almost anything else, it breaks down into glucose in the body. And so when we can eat way more fruits and vegetables, we can simplify the fact that we're taking in just simple glucose, right? Our body's not going to have to work so hard to process it to fuel our brain and fuel our body. And if you come back next week, you'll learn more about this in relation to the organ of the stomach. We'll be talking about food combining next week, yeah? So that's clear. Glucose is a pretty simple go. Of course, to process glucose in the body, we need the pancreas to give us some, anyone? Insulin, very good. So now we're linking things together because insulin is like the helper. Insulin is what helps for glucose to be transmitted and used by a cell, transmitted into and used by a cell, right? So insulin's a helper. As soon as we have that sugar, like, knock in the body, the pancreas starts to secrete insulin. What is that 
dis-ease, that level of imbalance where the pancreas can't secrete insulin, what's that called? Diabetes, cool, but we're not here to study disease. We're here. That was good, 10-year-old. We're here to study health, all right? So let's keep on this trajectory of health, and if we have time at the end, we can talk a little bit more about diabetes. I can't really see the clock, so maybe we'll just go on till 8 o'clock, all right? Just kidding, just kidding. I have somewhere to be. All right, so for sure, when body takes in glucose and not all of it's used, it's stored as something called glycogen. And glycogen is then stored in the body for use when you need it at later times. Yeah? There are some uh, competitive athletes that are taking straight shots of glucose or glycogen. Have you seen that before? Yeah, they don't have time for the body to take it and store it and wait. They just go on their, I don't know, 300-kilometer bike ride or something like that. So, all right, when we go from there, uh, we can look to fructose, our other monosaccharide. Fructose is actually processed really, really differently in the human body. Fructose has to be processed by the ultimate processor. What's this? What's the organ right here on the right lower side of my thoracic cavity? Yes, the liver. Thank you. The liver is the one that has to process fructose. It goes through a very different pathway because fructose is not what our brain runs off of. That's glucose. All right, so when we have fructose in the body, it goes through the liver, and it's often stored for later in fat cells for when it needs to be used. So fructose automatically saved for later in fat cells. So what was that, that sugar variety that our 10-year-old friend here shared with us? Yeah, what's the full name of that? High fructose corn syrup. This is the sugar from corn which is a plant, although it's an arguably natural plant because the first ear of corn was like the size of the tip of your pinky in Mesoamerica. And only over years of human hybridizing did it grow to be the ear of corn that you know today. And the human body doesn't really recognize that because it's essentially a human invention of a plant. And so this is why you see corn in your poo. Anyone? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, good. I'm glad we're on the same page with that one. So yeah, not really digestible unless you were to grind it or make it into like masa to make, you know, some tamales or you can make some tortillas like we do in Guatemala, right? And, and then those are just digested as a straight up carbohydrate in the body, right? It's a very different pathway. But when we extract the sugar, the sweetness on its own from corn, we have corn syrup. Specifically, the kind that's used all throughout packaged items, processed foods today is called high fructose corn syrup. And this is often the one that in the 90s started to be used in Coca-Cola. Because guess what they used in Coca-Cola back in the day? Actu actual sugar. <laughs> right? But no time for that anymore. Let's just throw in right, high fructose corn syrup. And so high fructose corn syrup is like an, a huge shock to the body. When the body takes it in, it says, oh my god, all this all this fructose has to be processed immediately through my liver, and then I can't use it right away, perhaps, so I'm going to store it in fat cells. So no wonder there's an issue with soda pop, right? I'm just, this is for my own curiosity. This is, there's no judgment. How many of you drink soft drinks and soda pop? All right, I love those honest hands in the room. All right, how many of the others of you who haven't raised your hand drink soft drinks or soda pop at a bar with a mixed drink or something like that? Yeah, a few more hands go up. The 10-year-old hands, I don't know why those are up, but all right. All right, so we'll go on from there. 
We start to see then that these two kinds of simple sugar are processed really differently into the human body. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what effect does that have on our body and specifically in our bloodstream? Because this is where the interesting second part of our lecture is going to start, even though I don't think I have too much time left, but we'll make it happen. All right? Well, has anyone ever heard of something called the glycemic index? Yeah, it's a pretty popular term today. It's something that people don't normally understand, but in general, this glycemic index, gly, does that sound like anything you know? Like glucogen, glucose, glycemic index? Yeah, it's talking about those sugars. It's actually glycemic index. It's talking about the level of sugar in your bloodstream, undigested at any one time. All right? And so when you take sugars in, by all means, you know that those go straight to the bloodstream, especially if they're in the variety of soda pop, which is a liquid, which as you'll learn next week in food combining, liquids go really fast on an empty stomach when uninhibited. They, they absorb in how many minutes? <coughs> yeah, about 15 minutes. Good. That was a pop quiz for people who have heard the food combining lecture before, just because there are a lot of them here. Yeah? So that means that when you drink something like soda pop on an empty stomach, within 15 minutes, right, to 20 minutes, you have hugely elevated levels of sugar in your blood. The glycemic index has just gone up. And so what happens? Well, it depends on what that sugar source came from, right? If it was soda pop, then it's usually high fructose corn syrup and it's going to be stored, processed through the liver and stored as fat, right? But if it was more of a naturally occurring sugar, let's take apple juice, for example, right? That's going to go into the bloodstream and then immediately the body's going to have what response to take the glucose and make it usable by the cell? What was the hormone? There we go, insulin. Very good. Now we're into review. From the pancreas comes the insulin to process the glucose and prepare it to be transmitted or transfused into the cell. All right? So as soon as the glucose level comes up, as soon as any kind of spike in blood sugar happens, right, the body's going to react. And so we start to judge foods in the modern day by their glycemic index. And this is said to be low when the effect on the blood sugar is minimal. It's said to be very high, like Coca-Cola, when the effect on the blood sugar is very high, right? And so Coca-Cola would have a high glycemic index. Something that would have a low glycemic index is something what we call complex carbohydrates. Now, we're not talking about those too much in our class today. Those are things like bread. Pasta, rice, cooked potatoes, right? These are complex carbohydrates. It takes the body a lot longer to break them down. If you want to know why, come back next week and we'll look at digestion in the stomach, all right? But in general, these are not liquids, so they're going to actually have to spend some time in the stomach for the sugars to be broken down and processed, right? When we look at the sugars naturally occurring in fruit or not naturally occurring in Coca-Cola, this is going to be something that speeds much more quickly through the stomach and thus is going to have much more of an effect on the bloodstream much faster. So those are the kind of sugars that we'll be talking about for the rest of the lecture. So in general, high glycemic index means that the blood sugar spikes high really fast. Low glycemic index, it's steady. It's not too much of a spike all right, in the amount of sugar in the bloodstream at any one minute. And so let's say something with a high glycemic in index comes into the body. Oh my goodness. If it came in the body in the form of sucrose, that was like let's say table sugar, beet sugar, something like that, it's going to then be broken down into, review, 
Good. Glucose and fructose. I'm glad you guys are getting this because if I just throw out these words and I don't repeat them, they can go in one ear and out the other. So I'm going to repeat them in a way that empowers you to leave here understanding what they are. All right. So when we break down the sucrose into glucose and fructose, we see that, of course, this is review again. With the glucose, it's either stored as glycogen or it's used immediately to fuel our brain and our muscles. All right. And with that, glucose absorption comes a lot of insulin release from the pancreas. Now, the thing is, if there's too much sugar coming in, the pancreas has to overwork to release lots of, lots of, lots of, lots of insulin. When we have excess amounts of insulin in the body, this is often related to kind of a stressful atmosphere, a stressful environment, that up and down, the spike of the sugar and the extra work that the pancreas has to do creates a stress response in the body. When there's a stress response in the body, the amount of growth hormone that's exhibited drops because the body's priority is not to grow and repair and build. The body's priority is to survive at that moment if there's a stress. You see that? And so when there's a diminished amount of growth hormone released, all of the sudden we witness a huge drop in our immune system. Yeah? And so has anyone ever realized a week when they had a lot of sugar? And then somehow the weekend came, maybe they didn't get so much sleep, and they woke up the next morning and had runny nose, a little sniffle, a little cold. Ever linked those two things? Acute illness and amount of sugar consumption? Right? Because your pancreas links them. All right, I love that your pancreas has a mind of its own. All right, so when we look at this, we start to see that uh, in general, it's super, super, super important to acknowledge that sugar does have an effect on our body. That our body can take sugar in, but only in usually a whole food form. Because as soon as we get of a form that's going to come too fast to the cell, and unfortunately, a lot of times that includes certain fruit juices, especially the ones that are pre-made for you and pasteurized and on the grocery shelf, right? Those tend to be processed foreignly to the human body. Because without the fibrous matrix of the actual fruit itself, the fruit sugars and the fruit juice are going to go directly toward the cell without that mediated time. All right? So that means that mango juice is actually processed really, really differently than a whole mango in the body. Because the mango itself, with all of that vegetable fibrous matter, has to be held up in the stomach. Right? The juices slowly come out and then eventually get to the blood. The mango juice taken in, boom, straight shot into the blood. No digestion required. All right? So what I teach and, and what some of you have heard before is that fruit, it's best to be eaten or blended. If you're juicing things, and I ju know juicing is really popular today. I run juicing programs here. If you're juicing, it's better to juice vegetables or those non-sweet fruit like cucumbers, or zucchini, or tomatoes. You can juice tomatoes, sure. Because right. that's going to be totally different into the body. All right. So that's the first lesson that you can take away. Juice your vegetables, specifically dark leafy green ones, and eat your fruit. Because the fruit actually requires this cellular fibrous matrix to slow down the absorption so you don't have that massive spike in sugar levels. So when we come to confusion about fruit sugar, because I'm sure that's why a lot of you are, the, are here today, this is um, a big 
dialogue where people say, oh, stop eating fruit, there's too much. Or there's, there's this girl, I don't know her name, but she has a big campaign in Australia now. Some of you have probably heard of it, I Quit Sugar. Over the past year, a lot of my clients have come and they're like, oh, I did the I Quit Sugar thing, which is really great because she's having you get off the beet sugar, get off the sucrose, get off the high fructose corn syrup, right? Get off the white powdered stuff. Unfortunately, though, she does also have people get off fruit, from my understanding, for a certain period of time. But what I'm here to tell you is that this white powdered stuff or any other derivative of the corn syrup or the beet sugar, whatever it is, is very, very, very different than the naturally occurring form that's been created by the chef of Mother Nature, right, in its whole form, so that your body can process and understand it 100%. Those, first of all, put my foot down, very, very different things, very different process in how it comes to the body. One's a slow absorption of glucose to fuel the brain and the muscles. That's in the form of fruit. The other one can come in as glucose and fructose, or perhaps first as sucrose, then broken down, going to the liver to be processed and then stored as fat, or perhaps taking a longer time to be processed into glucose, spiking the insulin level, right? Reducing the immune system. We see what I'm saying here is that processed sugar is bad. I was just giving you the chemical backup to it. I hope I, I, your eyes glazed over when I went <laughs> for a third time through that pathway. All right, so let's finish up here. The last thing to say, I suppose, in, in terms of blood sugar is in relation to the level of triglycerides in the body. Now, who knows what triglycerides are? I don't want to get over your head again. Anyone? Yeah, back there. I'm here. Shout it out. Yeah, very good. Very good, simple. Fat where? Fat on my bum? No. Triglycerides are fat in the bloodstream. Fat in the bloodstream, all right? And you guys might have heard of the two different kinds of uh, cholesterol, maybe? LDL, HDL, you've heard of these? Yeah? They're talking about triglycerides, fat in the bloodstream. Now, cholesterol is often another one that's quite misunderstood. It gets a bad rep because many people today have high cholesterol. You'll almost find no one with low cholesterol, although that's dangerous as well. But with our diet today, many people are having high cholesterol because we're eating a whole lot more than that 10% or so ratio of calories from fat. Right? One of the big transformations in human history that resulted in this was the processing of oils. And mind you, oils, I don't care what kind of oil it is, Right? If it's olive oil or if it's sunflower seed super processed refined oil, it's not a whole food. You see that? What is an oil? You take something, take an olive, right? You take a pumpkin seed, and what do you do to it to get the oil? You press it, exactly, if, if it's a good scenario, right? It's cold press, something like that. You press it, and as you press it, you're taking out all of the vegetable fibrous matter, and you're left with this liquidy stuff. That's 100% fat. But wait a minute. I thought fats, carbohydrates, proteins. Those are the whole food model. Those are all of the macronutrients, remember? Well, that oil, it's only one of the macronutrients, right? It's only fat. And so we start to see definitely not a whole food. And so as we started to have a huge rise in the amount of processed fats eaten, by the human species, we also started to see a whole host of disease come in, right? And high cholesterol was definitely a part of that, okay? In general, we can say that sugar tends to reduce LDL, 
HDL, sorry, which is going to be your good cholesterol. And sugar is going to increase LDL, the bad cholesterol. And so when we look at the, sh the relationship between fat in the bloodstream, triglycerides, remember, and sugar, this is where I like to start to shake things up. And I think on the sign for the advertisement, we said, like, come to see what the mainstream isn't telling you. Yeah? Did it say something like that? How many of you came because of the sign that you saw? Oh my goodness, the signs didn't work. Okay, just kidding. Just kidding. You beautiful people are here for another reason. I put out signs. Yeah, don't worry. Okay. So when we start to look at the absorption of sugar through the bloodstream, right, there tends to be a problem in about, I've heard data that say 90% of women, right, and many men. Right? And this problem comes in sugar suspended in the bloodstream, all right? And when there's too much sugar suspended in the bloodstream, it can't make its way to the cell. There's a certain friendly yeast that comes alive in the body to start to eat up all the excess sugar. Now, what is that yeast called? I know a lot of you know the name. There we go. Candida. Now, that's only its first name. Let's know it by its full name. Yeah, Candida albicans. This is a naturally occurring yeast fungus in both the intestinal tract of all humans. It's always there. It's part of our trillions of bacterial makeup, right? It's, it's a part of our microbiome, right? And it's in the vaginal tract of women. And so thrush, right? Yeast in the vagina. This is something that women are having more and more and more than ever before today. Well, this candida friend of ours, because remember, it is a friend. It's always there. And it's actually only trying to help us out is unfortunately made to look like an enemy today. All right? What ends up happening, the reflex of this, is when the body takes in sugar and it's not able to process it under these natural pathways that I explained to you for the first half of class, the sugar is suspended in the bloodstream. When there's that spike in the blood sugar, right, and the insulin can't help, candida albicans starts to grow and grow and grow. And like a yeast, it grows exponentially. The colony of candida can double in size in 30 minutes' time. That's super fast, right? And so as it grows exponentially, doubling in size, what it's doing is building up the forces, the army, to start to eat all of the excess sugar out of the bloodstream to make sure that you're not experiencing that spike in blood sugar to try to help you not have a stressed body and a suppressed immune system. Starting to make sense? Candida is actually your friend. And so, however, as it's been enemized and said, no, candida's horrible, everyone has overgrowth of candida, right? As if we could ever get rid of it, we can never get rid of candida entirely. It's part of our makeup as a human being, right? We just want to make sure that it's at its safe levels, that we're not calling for the SWAT team's help, right? Let's not get to that point of emergency. And so the thing is that most of the mainstream health practitioners, including naturopaths all over the world, including probably everyone in Ubud, says, stop eating sugar. You want to eradicate candida? Who wants to eradicate candida? Raise your hand. Be honest with me. Come on. You're with the doctor. All right. I think more of you than that, right? Have you been told stop eating sugar? Right? Stop eating all sugar. Stop eating fruit sugar as well. Yeah? Stop eating all, 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 all sugar. In fact, lower your amount of complex carbohydrates that you're eating. Don't eat pasta. Don't eat bread. Don't eat things like that. Don't eat any sugar. But wait a minute. What do we say? The brain runs off of sugar. The brain runs off of glucose. So actually, there's no physical way to stop 
eating sugar. Because even if we eat it in another form, the body's going to break it back down into glucose. And I can tell you guys this firsthand, right? Many years ago, when I was first dealing with this issue and, and being curious, because everything I say or do has been experimented on my body, right? So I experimented, and I stopped eating any form of sugar for nine months time. I know just a, about the amount of time I could have a baby, but I didn't have a baby. I stopped eating sugar. And guess what? I only got sicker. I only got sicker, and I said, you know what? There's a problem here. Someone's not thinking this through. Because if this is indeed how it should work, I should feel better within a week. And I didn't. Somehow I went on for nine months. Around that time was when I found some of my pivotal teachers, right, who turned me around 180 degrees and said, wait a minute, why? They were asking a question that almost no one's asking in the Candida movement today. Why is the sugar being suspended in the bloodstream? All right, now, if we're talking about processed refined sugars, of course, because the body doesn't know how to process that concentrated variety of sugar. But something like fruit sugar, right? Remember three and a half million years ago? That's what we're made to be eating. So why on earth would that be held up in the bloodstream? Well, let's go back to those friendly little triglycerides. Remember the, the amount of fat in the bloodstream? Yeah? So... When we look at the human bloodstream, we know that fat definitely clogs things. You guys know this if you've ever made dinner and you used like lots of oil and then you left the dishes in the sink and then the next morning you came back and there was like this cakey coating, right? Or even, let's say if you were to make coconut oil hard and cold, it's, it's caked, right? That's the effect of oil inside the body. It clogs things, yeah? And so... Why on earth would we have too much sugar suspended in the bloodstream? Why couldn't the sugar just go directly through to the cell? Maybe, perhaps, because there's too much fat in the bloodstream. Remember, we have that right here. Sugar is going to increase the harmful amount of cholesterol. Right? And that's processed sugar. But if we eat that processed sugar, and then we have the amount of high harmful fat clogging the bloodstream, even if we eat a more natural kind of sugar, the bloodstream's still clogged. Does that make sense? So my first advice to someone who's dealing with the issues of candida and the symptoms of which are things like bloating, that's a big one, foggy headedness, things like stuff in the corners of your eyes, dandruff, right? Candida, the symptoms go on. You can go home and research candida symptoms if you want, but just listen to the next minute or two to start to figure it out because what we see is that when the sugar comes into the body, when it's an elevated amount of fat, it cannot go straight to the cell and thus it's left suspended. Suspended in the bloodstream, that's time to call in SWAT team, our friend Candida Albacans, to come to grow exponentially in size and to eat up all of the excess sugar. Does that make sense? What I'm saying here is that candida overgrowth today, for sure it has to do with processed sugars. Those are natural concentrated varieties of sugar that we take into our body. But guess what? In terms of a whole foods diet, overgrowth of candida in the body, and especially systemic candida overgrowth, has a lot more to do with the amount of fat that you're eating than anything to do with sugar. Right? And that's the bottom line. That was what I was advertising on the signs. That's the little 
Like, that's the thing that not many people are looking at, the amount of fat. And so what happened after my nine months of not eating any sugar? Well, during those nine months, I really wasn't getting calories from anywhere, right? Because I wasn't eating these complex carbohydrates. I wasn't eating animal products, right? I wasn't eating fruit, which is a great whole food source of calories. And so I would go and I would have a giant salad at night like I still do. Leafy green vegetables, number one thing missing from our diet today, right? And in that giant bowl of salad, I was subconsciously craving calories. So what would I do? I would go and put oil, salad dressing all over my salad, thus continuously, continuously increasing the amount of fat in my bloodstream, making candida continuously a problem. So unless the fat is also addressed along with the processed sugars, I can't really see any luck in coming out of the candida conundrum. Yeah? And so then at the end of the nine months, when I finally you know, read this one pivotal book that I said, oh my God, that's the question that's not being asked. How about the fat? I switched. I turned around 180 degrees. I started eating tons of fruit and leafy green vegetables, right? All that stuff, the fruit that I'd given up for nine months, I ate it like I could never. At that time, I was in India. I've lived in India for a significant part of my adult life. I was in India where fruit is cheap and abundant. Right? And so there I was, I was eating tons of tons of fruit, and I completely eliminated any trace of fat in my diet. Within a matter of three days, everything had changed. And when I felt that, I realized, okay, there's something to this. And so when people come into my office and they tell me about their candida struggles, and they tell me about, they've been everywhere, they've tried everything, it's just not working, they still have symptoms, I say, you're in a really good place. Right? Let's ask the question about fat. And so if you are having those candida struggles, let's ask the question, how many nuts and seeds are you eating? How much oil are you eating? Remembering that one tablespoon of oil is 100 calories only from fat. Right? How much animal products, like fatty things, are you eating? Right? Dairy, for sure. Cheese, humongous amount of fat. Right? And all those calories from fat, that's a straight dopamine shot in your brain. Same thing that happens when you snort cocaine. That's why people are so addicted to cheese. A lot of people come in my office and sit down and say, I'll do anything you say, I just won't give up cheese. Right? That's why you love cheese so much. Slice of pizza, 1,000 calories just from that, right? from the fat. So what is your diet like on a macronutrient level? Those fats, those carbohydrates, and those proteins. Can you start to ask that question? Where am I getting most of my calories? My encouragement on behalf of the human species for health is to get most of your calories from carbohydrates. Right? And that doesn't mean pasta and bread. That means fruits and vegetables. God bless Australia. They've just redone their food pyramid. Has anyone seen that? Proud Australians in the room? Yeah. Woo! At the bottom, that heavy weighted portion of the food pyramid, the basis of the diet, they've put fruits and vegetables. Finally, the 1950s agricultural lobbying from the United States, from the wheat and soy industry goes out the window and we find that indeed fruits and vegetables are meant to make up the bulk of our diet. So we start one, two, three to put things together. We start to see that, wait a minute, the bloodstream is changing in every single moment. If a lion jumped through that door right now, there would immediately be adrenaline, right? cortisol, these hormones surging through your bloodstream. 
With the drop of a pin, the bloodstream can change. This is why blood tests are only semi-reliable because our bloodstream is always changing in response to our endocrine system, the hormonal signaling. And so the thing is, when we look at trying to get over candida here or there, remember the growth of candida is exponential. Well, the die-off of candida, which is what produces the symptoms, is also very, very fast. And so we see that we have the power to snap in and out of these imbalances quite fast. A lot of it has to do with an undiscovered part of medicine, which I'm getting more and more into every day. That's the part of the microbiome. You guys can check out my Facebook page. All week, last week, I've been posting stuff about the good bacteria in the gut and how lacking we are in it. This is a role in this whole game that we're playing, right? And so there are all of these other influences, but the main trajectory that we're looking at with the sugar question is actually not about sugar. For, of course, it's, it's about eliminating any kind of processed sugar. Moreover, it's about fat. And so that's it's kind of what I want to leave you with. And I think I just talked up to the time, but we'll have time for a question or two. And so if you guys are, are struggling um, with anything I teach or anything I say, I always encourage you to not believe me. Please don't believe me. Just because I shared a personal story tonight, don't believe me. Verify me. Go out and start to experiment on your own. Start to ask these questions in your own life. Start to reflect upon your own body because mind you, you cannot really do in-depth digestive studies in this living, breathing human body because if I were to bring that into a laboratory and cut it open, it would no longer be living, breathing, and digesting. Which means that the best experiments that you can do are on your own with your own body. So please become a scientist in the laboratory of your body and start to empower yourself to understand these from your own experience, not just from some WebMD or some kind of internet research article. Because yes, there is so much information out there and it's so contradicting to each other. A lot of the things I've said tonight is probably very contradicting to things that you've read before. And so again, don't believe me. Try it out. If it doesn't work, write me. And we'll talk about it. We'll talk about maybe there was something in the experimentation was off, or maybe I'm wrong. Right? I don't claim to have all the answers or be right about anything. But this is something that I've experimented with day after day after day after day in my life. Yeah? And I can tell you that this is something that I'm quite confident about. So let me hear your questions. Maybe one or two. Yes. Yeah, what about honey? Is that natural? I love natural this question. Problem. Honey, honey, honey. Great question. So no, honey is proven to spike the blood Sugar, like, like processed sugar. It's an incredibly concentrated variety. And when you say honey, we have to say what kind of honey? Because unfortunately, do you guys know what honey is? It's the food that bees make to store up for the winter, right? It's essentially their store. Well, in mainstream beekeeping today, what humans do is, first of all, feed bees honey, uh, feed bees sugar, not honey. They feed them white sugar. So we're going to know that their honey that they're producing is probably a little off. But moreover, then in the next cycle, the next year, the next round, once they take the honey, they replace it again with white sugar. So not only is their normal diet white sugar, right, but then the stuff they've made to store for the winter is white sugar. So bees are eating white sugar. So commercial mainstream honey today, questionable. All right. Now, if it's like, yeah, like a raw, unfiltered, wild, collected honey, something like that, something that's good quality, this is great to use as medicinal. 
right? It's a wonderful antibiotic, wonderful antiseptic actually on the skin. Honey itself can be used to, to deal with allergies, although allergies are a greater reflection of usually the small and large intestine and what's going on there. You can talk to Heidi and Lindsay about that, colon hydrotherapy. But uh, it can be used as a medicine, but as a food product, not so much. Great question. All right, I'm going to take his question, then we're going to finish. Yeah. I love, I love this question too. Yeah, and I just want to be clear with you asked, are you saying if we should cut those oils from the diet? Yeah. That's yeah. Okay, so to be really clear, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying to cut all oil from the diet. If you are someone who is experiencing this back and forth of candida symptoms, if you're someone who's had the birth control pill, if you're someone who's been on antibiotics numerous times or over a long period of time in your life, likelihood is that your inner biome is a bit off kilter. And so that's going to cause this spike and rise in candida. It's going to cause your body not to be able to deal with the absorption of the sugars as well as the fats in a natural way. And so for those kind of people who already know that candida perhaps is an issue in their life, and again, I read studies that have shown 90% of Western women today are dealing with candida overgrowth, right? So that's, that's a lot of people. For those people, I do encourage them to experiment for a period of, let's say, three days, five days, one week, eliminating all overt fats. Absolutely all things that are a massive amount of their macronutrients from fat. Anywhere from 60% of the calories from fat in nuts and seeds to 100% in oils. Take that stuff out for a certain period of time. Eat mostly fruits and vegetables, right? Of course, no processed sugar. See how you go. See how you go. And then you'll add the fat back in. Maybe you'll have a day where you have a lot of fat. Right? There are days where I have like a coconut curry or something like that, where it's straight up santan, coconut milk. Right? That's a lot of fat going in the human body. The next day, I might wake up and have some symptoms of candida. And I can link that directly to the fat. And so I'm not saying give it up. I'm saying be conscious of it. And I'm saying... It, yeah, I mean, you, you, if, if you're curious about your body, you might want to also do an experimentation with not having oil for a while and see how it goes. Usually salt and oil after a fast, these are the two things that bring you back into a lowered state of vitality. Yeah, there's a really cool diet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elbow and uh, pitch a diet here. It's called SOS-free. It's salt, oil, sugar-free. It's a pretty forward-thinking diet. You guys can, it's not any, I don't have any money in it. I'm not involved in it at all. It's just something interesting to look into. And there are all of these interesting kinds of ideas and movements about the health. But in terms of a diet and following anyone's pre-written expectation or suggestions for what to eat during the day, I don't recommend that. I would never give a client a form that says, eat this at breakfast, eat this at lunch, and eat this at dinner. And those of you who have worked with me in the detox retreat weeks, you know this. Because to me, that's the biggest form of disempowerment. Whereas I choose to send you as a scientist into your own body, to give you the basic guidelines, hydrate more, poop more, eat more fruits and vegetables, and mind you, those three things together will actually allow you to poop more, and as you poop more, the body will balance out more, you'll be in more of a healthy state, right? So that the body can not only deal with the imbalance in microbacteria, so if that's perhaps having more probiotics, these are all crucial things, I'm giving you hints here at the end, right? then over time you won't have such a big response to eating such high levels of fat. But if you are eating high levels of fat in your diet, check in with your bloodstream. Just see how it is. How do you feel with it? How do you feel without it?
Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Vitality Podcast. Please click over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review to spread this work with the world. You have a part in transforming humanity's health. Keep enjoying this free resource and make sure to give back by sharing, subscribing, and checking out all of Andrea's work at liveforvitality.com, where you can find links to Instagram and other social media. Andrea also gives astrology readings, holds online fasting retreats, and teaches detox courses and advanced yoga teacher trainings. So come to liveforvitality.com and let Andrea transform your life now.